0: Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice, and I am joined by my colleagues Mike Shaw and Drew Kat as we talk about this year's second installation of our survey, uh, our Schooling in America survey. So this is a survey that we put in the field for years now, and we'll talk about some of the longitudinal trends that have been developed. But obviously, we're polling people at a very interesting time in world history, in american history, in the history of education in america. I was just thinking right before this, it's like a like a James Brown reference here, Survey in America. But uh, you know, if if this starts dragging uh, Jacob our wonderful podcast producer, I'll come out and like pretend to collapse on the ground and he'll throw a cape on me and then I'll rise up and and cast it off and we'll just we'll just keep it moving. But I'm mostly going to play a backing role here. I will be the Clyde Stubblefield to our twin James Browns that will be sharing the information here, Mike and Drew. Drew, I'm going to throw it to you first just to put some background. So we talk about the Schooling in America survey, as one can probably derive from that. It is a survey, it is a poll of Americans about schooling issues. But can you just kind of give some of those background details, who we worked with, who we asked, like what what we talked about, and
1: then we'll get into the results? Yeah. So for those of you that have not already poured over every single potential document related to wave one, especially the survey profile, we once again worked with our partners Braun research on this survey. This was an English-Spanish option. So for this second wave, we actually fielded the survey from September 30th to October 20th. And for a refresher, the first wave was kind of the May 22nd to June 2nd. So So yeah, this one is really kind of when parents have their kids, I guess, back in education, not necessarily back in school, depending on what their district or state is doing or what they have themselves chosen to do for their family. And this time we did an oversample of school parents. So while our general population sample, or basically adults ages 18 and over, is about 1,200 individuals, the oversample of school parents is closer to almost 1,700 individuals, whereas we typically just wait Based for the general population. This time we did wait for the school parents as well. So that not only can we say that our general population results are kind of representative and can be applied in any state, any city, you know, depending on community type, but we can say the same thing about school parents this time as well.
0: So let's get into it, right? One of the classic questions we ask, we've been asking it since 2013, is right track, wrong track, right? This is something we see in in all sorts of surveys and in politics across a variety of issue areas so we ask whether people think that the american k12 education system is on the right track or on the wrong track and i think one of the interesting things that we found is for the last few years we've actually seen a bit of an uptick in the percentage of people who think that k12 education system is heading in the right direction and a leveling off even slight downtick on the number of people who think that it was going in the wrong direction but between the spring and the fall we saw a big change there. We saw a big jump in the number of folks saying that's on the wrong track. We saw a decline in the number of people that see it going on the right track. So, Mike, what do you think is going on there?
2: Yeah, so this is one of those questions, Mike, like you said, we ask annually. And as a quick aside, I think it's worth noting that I think the most valuable thing about our School in America survey is the, the trend lines we can observe year over just because we've been doing it consistently for a long time with the same or or a substantially similar instrument for a lot of these questions. And this right track, wrong direction one certainly qualifies as a great trend we have. You know, with that said, because we did the two-wave installment that Drew described this year, it kind of remains to be seen how we'll go about establishing the 2020 trend because we do have these two data points for spring and the fall. But it is super interesting that we did see a kind of divergence with the wrong track, right direction, education in the spring late spring really early summer when this was surveyed you know we didn't know how long the pandemic would last we didn't know that virtual education necessarily would be a a part of the school system long into 2020 and and indeed perhaps in 2021 so you know when i read this with with the general public maybe folks are just having pandemic fatigue potentially the virtual schooling hasn't been entirely successful across all States and sectors, but it is interesting that parents seem to be a little more forgiving on the system as a whole. With
0: yeah, uh, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that because there seems to be a divergence from this trend when we ask school parents. So could you maybe walk through what those numbers look like for for school parents and what do you think's happening there?
2: Right. So as you're getting to the general public, it's a little more than six and ten in the fall. I believe education's on the wrong track. It's really just a little more than half in the fall of school parents who think that way and you know, it's 46% and it's in the right direction. So, you know, it's tough to prognosticate too much about why this differs. I I think if you look for trend lines in years past, parents are generally a little bit more forgiving, too, and and certainly more opinionated. They're more likely to have an opinion on this question even after our our instrument changed a couple years ago. But my initial thought, they're maybe more forgiving. They're the ones maybe having to facilitate this virtual schooling. And while they'd probably be the first to admit it isn't going perfectly, they're going to be more forgiving of the system as a whole.
0: Yeah. And Drew's, we got at this another way as well. So, in addition to just asking the right track, wrong track question, we also broke it down a little bit more and asked both the general population and parents to give some of their local, well, not just local, but sort of the institution in their lives, the institutions in their lives, grades. And so we asked them, like, okay, we sort of combined with the end, local schools, local businesses, local government, state government local news media, national news media, corporations, and the federal government. We've combined them all to say, okay, so who got the number of A's and B's, highest number of A's and B's? And one of the things I thought was really interesting, both from the general population and from school parents, we saw every single one of those institutions. So from the local to the national, the governmental, the non-governmental, we saw declines in the number of A's and B's. And obviously, you know, local schools saw one of the biggest drops, but local businesses saw drops, too. So as you look at all of those things, what do you see going on there?
1: Yeah, and that's a great point that you made about the differentiation there between, again, as Mike Shaw, you were talking about the general population versus the current school parents. But, yeah, so in the spring, it was about two-thirds of the general population saying local schools and local businesses got an A or a B. And, and I would like to point out that the spring respondents and the fall respondents are two completely separate, unique populations. So this is not a direct follow-up trend with the respondents from the spring. But again, since they're both nationally representative samples, we can assume that you know we can make this comparison. So yeah, now it went from 66% saying that local businesses get an A or B down to 56. And local schools went from about two-thirds to a little less than half and the general population. So yeah, that was really striking. And then, again, like focusing on those current school parents, it's like, yeah, there's still 58% of current school parents saying that local schools get an ARB. So again, they're being more forgiving, I guess, and more understanding. And again, that could be because they're closer to it. They're more informed of the decision-making that's happening. They're actually potentially hearing from teachers, not just administrators, like some of the general population, general public maybe. So that may be a difference there as well.
0: And in addition to this lack of confidence or changing over time, one of the things that stood out to me in these results, is just terrible. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no way of sugarcoating it. So we asked a question about changes in childhood happiness and stress. And so compared to the spring, so this is just looking not even longitudinally, but just comparing the sort of spring to the fall. Parents are, they're more likely to report that their child is more stressed, and they're more likely to report that their child is less happy. I mean, should we be surprised by that? Mike, Trude, did that surprise you?
2: You know, surprise, maybe not the best word. It's It certainly interests me like it did you, Mike. I think here it's important to note, too, in regard to the instrument for this question set, you know, while our follow-up survey and really the overall design and the the kind of rationale for doing this two-wave approach for SIA this year is is certainly rooted in the pandemic. Not every question is super explicit that we're priming parents about the pandemic directly. These questions are an exception, though. Our baseline for the happiness and, and stress levels of students is before pandemic and after pandemic. And, you know, we have these kind of two data points after the pandemic, the spring and the fall, to kind of measure this. And, you know, if you're looking back to the spring, like I was saying before with kind of grading institutions and how schools are doing, there was still a large degree of uncertainty about the duration of how long this would last, You know, how long would it be until children could see their friends safely and in schools and unmasked and things like that. And as the pandemic has progressed, it's it's becoming more and more indefinite. And I think stress levels naturally rise as a result of that. So again, surprise maybe not the best way that I perceive this. Certainly interested in it and, and just, Knowing that this is one of our, our question sets that is kind of dead on, hinting at pandemic effects is, is certainly useful, I think, for, for onlookers.
0: And so, Drew, we disaggregated this and asked these questions based on where their children attend school. So what we were just talking about, the totals, we broke it down to, and one of the striking findings
1: um, Yeah, and that's something that I found very, very fascinating, especially since so much of the work that I do with parent surveys, we do break it out by sector. So knowing that sector differences exist in other areas, we kind of hoped that we would see something similar here. And yeah, it's the private school parents and the homeschool parents say that their perception of their children pre-pandemic to now is, um, yeah, the private, private sector and the homeschooling sector are more likely to say that their children are happier now than they were and as compared to the charter and public district sector and then yeah it's also the homeschooling parents that stand out where it's nearly one in five homeschooling parents say that their child is much less stressed now compared to before the pandemic so yeah just wondering really how much there is to that when i presented these results for a conference we kind of for a research conference talked a lot about like well like how much of that has to do with the makeup of kind of the homeschooling environment. Whereas maybe a homeschooler is used to only having access to one parent during the day. Now the homeschooler has access to hypothetically both parents during the day if, you know, the parent that was going out and working the nine to five outside of the home is now working inside of the home. So so yeah, just, just wondering if how much of that kind of has a role. Also wondering how much of the way that various schools and districts have rolled out the kind of online learning or the hybrid schedule, how much that impacts any sector differences as well.
2: And maybe just to put a coda on this question set, and I, I should emphasize our Schooling in America survey is we try to be pretty wide and, and perhaps a little bit shallow in our question set and scope just to, to survey a large degree of, of topics. And you know, this certainly isn't a happiness and stress intensive focus question set we have. But I, I do think it's interesting when you look at other polling in 2020 thinking of K-12 education as an ecosystem. Others have found things like substance abuse on the rise as a concern among parents and public school teachers. Uh, PDK found that at their poll. you're also seeing other polling and survey work among teachers who who we've used as a survey demographic in the past and necessarily concentrate on this year, but that their burnout rates are increasingly high this year. So just kind of encapsulating the increased stress, decreased happiness in the ecosystem you're seeing the pandemic having an effect all the way around.
1: I would just say anecdotally, like I think I saw a piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago where they were kind of interviewing and kind of profiling various teachers and different sectors. And and like based on you know my wife, who's a public high school teacher and the amount like she's she's putting in by her tally an extra 10 to 15 hours a week compared to pre-pandemic. And yeah, that's something that those profiles in the New York Times that looked at charter school teachers, public school teachers, that's something that's the same. So yeah, a lot of burnout. Essentially, coming from the, the added work, the added bureaucratic hurdles with the virtual versus hybrid versus in person. Yeah, it's, it's kind of astounding.
0: Yeah, so sticking with some of these sector differences. So an additional question that we asked was breaking down what schools have been doing. So rather than having a sort of general given AB rating for how well you think your child's school has been doing, we also broke down the various things that they've been doing so communication from teachers access to teachers quality of instruction technology logistics of remote learning etc one of the things that we found overall aligned to some of the other answers that we've seen thus far is that generally speaking parents were pretty forgiving so like 70% of parents on the whole gave communication from teachers an a or a b one difference here the one that they were the most and nearly a quarter of families gave a D or an F to the reopening plans, which I think shouldn't really surprise any of us. I don't I don't know how many school districts really covered themselves in glory on that one, but I want to stick on this theme of sector differences because not only we asked those questions just as a whole, but then we asked based on where people's children went to school, whether it was a district school, a charter school, or a private school. And one of the things that we found consistently was the ranking of percentage of people who give them A's and B's. In almost every place that we asked, every way we broke it down, it went private school, charter school, district school. Now, some of them were close. You know, we saw some ties. There was one case where traditional public school district scored higher than charter schools. But in almost every other place, it's private school, charter school, then public district school. What, Drew, if anything, does that tell us?
1: Yeah, and again, like, we didn't ask on every single metric or every single, you know, potential category, just the ones that we could think of and that we went with our polling vendors' recommendations as well. But, yeah, I think it really shows kind of the differentiation in how private schools kind of conduct themselves and conduct their business compared to some charter district schools. You know, I would be surprised if this rank ordering on the same thing, aside from, you know, reopening plan— the percentages may have been pretty similar in 2019 and the rank ordering may have been pretty similar in 2019 compared to today. So I don't necessarily think this is a product of what schools did or did not do or have or have not done during the pandemic, but potentially just a differentiation between how private schools conduct themselves versus how charter and district schools conduct themselves in terms of like communication from teachers, access to teachers, quality of instruction, communication from leadership, et cetera.
2: Yeah, and, and as much as kind of segregating by school sector is a good indication of school choice and school choice policies, you know, in as much as school choice is a self-selecting process in regard to especially here where students are going to a private school or a charter school. You know, I I think with the reopening plan findings in particular, and and again, they're not highly negative necessarily. You know, you're still talking for all sectors, at least half of parents grading an A or a B for things like the reopening plan and more close to two-thirds for other variables but you know i think in as much as private schools have more autonomy than a lot of district schools or just because they're desegregated from a district reopening plan they might have been more likely to reopen in certain cases and you know there's evidence that parents who wanted to have in-person instruction or more in-person instruction than public schools and school districts provided were self-selecting into private schools it's not necessarily surprising they were or approving or grade graded higher those plans this year in particular.
0: Yeah, just to wrap these up, I think another sort of interesting finding that a lot of this kind of comes together. So just looking at the percentage of current school parents who are overall satisfied, one of the things that we found in that same sort of rank ordering, private school, 72% of parents in this most recent WAVE were very satisfied. So they could pick very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied, or not enough experience yet. But of those categories, 72% of private school families said they were very satisfied, 55% of homeschoolers were very satisfied, 43% of charter school, and only 36% of district schools were very satisfied. I'd also just add, before we move on, We've been asking questions about homeschooling, which is pretty interesting. From the spring to the fall, the percentage of current school parents that were favorable to homeschooling jumped up 12 percentage points. Now, it'll be interesting as things, Lord willing, go back to normal, whether people continue to have those things. This doesn't necessarily say that they want to homeschool or they're going to homeschool, but they're at least more favorable to it, which I think is not nothing.
1: Yeah. And this is one where I didn't necessarily do it here, but I also broke this out for a research conference presentation looking at the sector differences. And it's actually the the homeschooling sector that is more likely to say that they are less favorable and the charter and private school parents that are more likely to say that they're more favorable. So, yeah, that's really interesting as well as it's it's the, the perception from the outside versus the perception from the inside is different. For sure. So now, obviously, we included a lot of these questions. We're
0: interested in how these things have worked out related to the peculiar circumstances of this year. But our Schooling in America survey also has some old favorites. And I think that they're worth talking about as well. Some of these questions we've been asking for a long time. One of my favorites is our school funding question, right? So we do two things when we survey folks, and this is uh, just of the general population. We ask, do you believe that public school funding is too high, too low, or about right? And consistently, we find when people don't have the information, they say that it's too low. So in this case, about 53% of respondents said that that funding was too low. When they actually get the information we're able to impute into the survey how much their state spends on average, it dramatically drops. It drops down to 34 percent people saying it's too low. And while we see the, those sort of votes distributed to about right and a small number of them move over to too high. So One of the things, Mike Shaw, that I'm interested in knowing is this is something that we're not the only people that ask questions like this. I know Education Next does and others. So I keep thinking, I mean, we've been doing this for years. Like, at some point, are people going to figure out how much money their states spend? Because, like, the whole premise of this question is that people don't know, and it keeps working over and over again. And I keep expecting some year for people to, like, Get how much their state spends on education, but time and time again it doesn't. Is that gonna change? Is this just sort of a facet of our culture that we just don't know how much we spend on schools?
2: Yeah, I mean the so the cultural aspect is possibly some of it. I mean, you know, in as much as you're just assigned to the district you're living in and so much of K-12 education is taken care of, at least as far as the assignment and, and kind of protocols are concerned, I think Americans are too inquisitive when at least bare minimum services are provided for them, and they don't tend to ask a lot of questions or follow-ups. So the culture is part of it. I also just think the system is pretty opaque. If you talk to Marty Lugan, our our fiscal director, uh, he'd be the the first to tell you how indiscernible most states' funding formulas are and and how difficult it may be to even just find this baseline information about what it costs states to educate students. And, of course, there are all these weighting and location-based variables that we don't really get into with this survey instrument so, yeah, I mean, again, maybe I'm not as surprised just because it's a pretty opaque system. It's pretty niche in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, if, if our survey does anything, it informs at least our small-ish sample of 1,000 to 2,000 people each year about what it does cost and, and maybe some opinions or changes as a result. But uh, if, if that's the rate it takes to change opinions or, or, or to inform, really, not to change opinions, it's, it's going to uh, take a lot of time.
0: What you're saying is we just need to execute the survey, what, 10, 20, 30,000 more times, and then we'll tell everyone. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Essentially.
1: Well, and that may have held true in the past, but this year we did do something different. Kind of took the lead of something that Ednext has been doing for a little while, asking about district-specific, and we asked about state-specific. So we were actually, instead of in years past, we asked people to estimate it based on public funding in their state, Whereas previously, prior to 2020, we were asking for in the United States, so the national average. And then you have for the split sample, we actually were able to give them, on average, this amount is being spent per year attending schools in your state. And depending on the state, that ranged from like about 7200 to almost $23,000, which I think that was D.C. That was usually the the higher one. But But yeah, so we were even able to get a little more granular this year because you know i would hope that people are more able to estimate the spending in their state than they are the national average but yeah we're still we're still kind of seeing the same thing is that a lot of people just really aren't good at estimating really what's spent in their state and and even like on the national level i've seen and i had to throw this out on like a state poll before but like you can type in the number one, two, three, four, five, and you're more likely to be closer to the actual national average than anything that you would actually guess.
2: Yeah, and I think specificity Drew is, is really important. I'm glad we made that switch this year and we'll we'll continue to do so in following years. I think the interesting thing though with with this year in particular and, and moving forward is just as it did during the Great Recession, there's going to be budget battles in state houses come the spring or or perhaps virtually budget battles and K-12 education may take another hit. So whether these perceptions change or not will probably depend a lot on those budget battles as a result of revenue falls from COVID and uh, as well as just the the public perception of K-12 education funding.
0: Yeah, so another one of my favorite sort of charts that comes out of Schooling in America every year, a very compelling sort of just one take a quick look at a graphic and it tells you a lot is the question that we ask parents about where they would like to send their children to school versus where children actually go to school. And so when you ask parents where they would like to send their children to school, sort of this is if you know if they were able to do so, if they had sort of complete school choice, what we see is about a third of parents say that they would send their kids to a public district school. Around 13% say they'd send their kid to a charter school say that they would send their children to a private school, and 12% say that they would homeschool their children. So nice, nice even distribution there, like a little bit for everybody. But when you look at the actual enrollments, while only 33% of school parents would, in their ideal world, send their children to a uh, traditional district school, in actuality, 83% do. There is a 50-point gap between how many people would like to send their kids there and how many people actually send their kids there. You know, we see the drop too, only about 5% of kids are in public charter schools, about 8% of kids are in private school and about 3% of kids are homeschooling. So far lower than that. But, you know, that's something that we see basically every year, that actual enrollments do not match what parents want. But I want to drill down to something that I think is actually an interesting wrinkle in this because this year we broke this question down by income to lower-income families, middle-income families, and higher-income families. And I think we saw some really interesting differences there. While generally speaking, the patterns were similar to one another, the actual kind of bundle of how each one of those ended up is different. So, Mike, can you break some of these down? And were there, were there some of these differences that stood out for you?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the big one is this kind of income Differentiation in that the lower income parents were more likely than the other income demographic groups. And, you know, I, I should note we have some pretty broad income bands here in SIA. Um, you can review the instrument or questionnaire to kind of see the, the cutoff ranges. But, you know, the, you can make an argument that just having the three income bands may kind of change, not change the results, but things would look different if there were more income bands potentially. But anyway, the lower income parents were more likely than the middle and higher income parents to prefer homeschooling for their children and less likely than higher income parents to prefer private schooling. Now, this is interesting as a snapshot to me, but I also think it could be indicative of future years and where things might be headed with education policy in that the pandemic is really squeezing private schools, in particular, the private schools in in inner cities and, and elsewhere that generally charge lower tuition rates and are deemed as more affordable options along with kind of scholarships and other school choice opportunities for lower income parents. And they're being especially squeezed this year due to the pandemic and not being able to have their, their full enrollments. On the flip side, homeschooling, which, you know, in, in a certain lens is kind of seen as more of a higher income, one working parent, one stay-at-home parent sort of endeavor, Accurate or not that it can be the perception, now, has kind of been, in some ways, thrust upon parents of all income spectrums, especially lower income parents who were more likely, our survey and others found, to have more complete virtual enrollment and schooling for this fall semester. And whereas previously, this homeschooling option might have been seen as unattainable for lower income parents, just not an option, just outside the realm of possibility. Now that, at least in some shape or form, it's been thrust on them, I'm wondering how that perception will continue to change and evolve from here on out.
1: And the really interesting thing is if you compare this income breakout to like the income breakout for um, how opinions of homeschooling have changed, it's flipped. So how favorability of homeschooling has changed, the higher income parents are the most likely to say that they're more favorable and the lower income parents are the least likely to say that they're more favorable. But when it comes to, like, their actual preferences, uh, which when it did come to the preferences, we did specify parent-directed homeschooling to kind of hopefully make it so parents weren't thinking about hybrid or virtual schooling at all. Uh, But, yeah, the the fact that it is flipped, that's really, really fascinating. That, like, okay, the lower income group compared to the other income groups is the least likely to say that they're more favorable and they're the most likely to actually prefer homeschooling. So – I want to move on
0: when it comes to actually making some of this stuff happen and again some classic questions that we've been asking in the school in the america survey all the way back to 2013 is about favorability of various types of school choice programs and we'll go through education savings accounts vouchers tax credit scholarships and charter schools but to put the sort of headline here at the front for all of those forms of school choice we saw the highest favorability ratings of any point that we have been asking these questions. And so maybe just to start with ESAs to show this, and this is for both when we look at the general population as well as parents, but we look at education savings accounts. Our polling of favorability of them in 2016, right? 52% of our respondents said that they supported education savings accounts. Now, that was a bit down back in 2015. It was 62%. So it might have been a a bit of an anomalous dip there. But from 2016 till the fall of 2020, when now 81% of our respondents in the general population said that they support education savings accounts. And obviously, we saw some commensurate dips in the people who were opposed to them as well. But from 52 to 81, I mean, Mike, that's a huge gain, isn't it? And this is something that we see even in parents. I mean, the parent question has gone in 2016, 58% favorable to 86, like 86% favorable, which is just an insanely high number. What do you see there?
2: Yeah, Mike, I mean, you're, you're spot on. you be hard pressed to find many policies, nonetheless, K-12 education specific policies that a have increased favorability that precipitously in, in uh, a relatively short duration, and and B just have such a high uh, support rate at this time. You know, you're talking more than eight and ten people support ESAs based off our results. This is one of those things. First, it, we should note, of course, for for these results we're referring to for school choice uh, programs, we as we have in the past, we offer general results just kind of probing. Folks about the policy um, by name only, and it's maybe not surprising, but favorability changes when you actually give them a definition, description of the results, which we're alluding to here. And maybe this year, more than ever, parents and others, taxpayers, are kind of seeing what's possible with school choice programs, and, and more specifically, ESAs, which kind of give you the more flexible approach to education by kind of uh, unbundling. And going you've done work on this, unbundling. K-12 education services. So super interesting to me in in some standpoint that it's risen this high and and risen this quickly, but there's still going to be a gap, I think, in the intermediate term with educating folks about these policies on a a wider basis, kind of going back to, Mike, the the funding issue or or lack of knowledge of that issue.
0: Yeah. So Drew, just to kind of keep the party going, school vouchers. So we ask, do you favor these? Do you oppose them? And then we also obviously give an option for if you don't know about them or if you want to skip the question or whatever. In the general population, we see a 73-26 favor to oppose. And among school parents, a 78-21. Now, I guess one question that I would have for you is, do you see these as sort of like independent observations or is there just like a general kind of pro-school choice trend? And so like whatever we... We could have said anything that gives people more school choice, and just given the circumstances of the world, that people would be more in favor of it? Or or is it more specific? Is it more general? Or is it something else?
1: My working hypothesis is that there appears to be kind of an inverse correlation when you're looking at voucher favorability and the percent that would give their local schools an A or B rating. So if you remember, like what we talked about earlier in the podcast, the spring compared to the fall, we saw a decrease in people giving their local schools an A or a B. And then we're seeing increases when it comes to ways to realistically financially afford alternatives. So I I, I really do wonder if kind of there is a connection there you get more of a more of a correlation than a causation, if you will, uh, for the researchers that are listening. But yeah, that's kind of my working assumption is that it, it may be reflecting more of a dissatisfaction or perception of the local schools and kind of more of a desire for options now maybe than there was in the past. And it looks like
0: we see something similar here with tax credit scholarships, right? So it's a 74-24 split with the general population and an 83-17 with current school parents. So, Mike, do you think that tells sort of advocates anything? Did, like, do did these data and looking at the difference, ESAs, vouchers, tax credits, is there anything that people who maybe are trying to, you know, we have legislative sessions that are coming up in, in the spring here. Is there something that, that advocates can take away from these numbers?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, the, the trends for a lot of these programs and, and policies we've been observing for a while now have been positive to overwhelmingly positive for a while. So, for those in the know, for advocates really trying to push these programs, these results aren't necessarily surprising. I, I do think it's it's worth mentioning digging in a little bit more how folks feel on a granular level, both at the demographic level as well as kind of how these policies are implemented. You know, specifically, we we tend to ask with ESAs, and we've done this with other programs in the past whether they should be specifically targeted to folks at the you know lower income level or, or any other kind of targeted approach versus universal, seeing again that the universal application for a school choice program is more favorable. And other polling is, is seeing this as well, which is interesting. So I think if, if you're an advocate or, or someone trying to implement this policy, that's something to take away. And at this standpoint, and, and again, who knows where things will be come spring legislative sessions and how education schools will look. But the fact is, the folks who have had to receive some alternative form of schooling in the form of virtual schooling or or kind of hybrid or, or what have you, that's kind of been exposed to everyone this year. Whereas those who just really needed it and wanted it and you know just the, the default option wasn't a good fit for their child, that's kind of been a minority for a while, uh, at least as far as those who actually did take action and were, were empowered uh, financially or otherwise to do so. Now that everyone's been exposed to it, who knows, uh, what kind of groundswell we'll see. But I do know it'll be a topic in legislative sessions uh, come the spring.
0: Now, I would be remiss if I didn't also say that for our charter school favorability, we saw very similar numbers to this as well. But taking a step back as we kind of uh, bring our conversation here to a close, and obviously we could keep talking about this for a long time, we encourage everybody to check out the full results. We're only giving a small you know, grab bag of things that we found to be interesting. There's a lot more stuff in there. But I want to give each of you a chance to just sort of either taking the big picture, or if there was something in here that we missed that you think people really should know about, as we kind of walk away from this conversation and the data and survey and polling that that undergirds it, what should people walk away with from this conversation,
1: Drew? I'll give it to you first, and then and then Mike Shaw, you can uh, you can follow up. Yeah, I think one of the things that stuck out to me, and to kind of finish along with the charter school stuff, is awareness. So I love measuring awareness and doing the wording experiments around awareness. Um, so when it comes to awareness of educational choice reforms from the spring to the fall, there was not much difference when it came to ESAs. In fact, it was like 35% said that they had never heard of ESAs in the spring versus 36% in the fall. There's a slight decrease in vouchers went from 29% saying they'd never heard of vouchers in the spring to 27% in the fall, but charter schools, there's actually a 3%, I guess, decrease In unawareness. So, I guess a 3% increase in awareness, going from 15% in the spring saying they'd never heard of charter schools to 12% in the fall saying they'd never heard of charter schools. So, yeah, it's to me, it's the more that families are wanting options, the more that they are favorable of the policies. I think there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to awareness. Um, And that's something that I've seen within like state parent surveys as well, that one of the reasons that you know, parents not participating in a program say that they don't participate in the program is because they've never heard of the program in their state. So I think, yeah, in terms of whether it's homeschooling, charter schooling, private school choice, I think in a lot of states, there's still a lot of work to do at the ground level in terms of grassroots advocacy and awareness building.
2: Yeah. And for and for me, bringing it back to pandemic and its effect on education, I'm, I was pretty interested in, we didn't really get to touch on this a whole lot, but this isn't surprising, but the fact that COVID-related concerns, as far as children getting exposed to the coronavirus or or social isolation, uh, falling behind academically, parents still rated those concerns really high in the fall. Uh, it was between a third and, and four and ten parents were rating those concerns extremely high. Closer to half did have general concerns about those and other related COVID education issues. So I think that's that's something to keep a pulse on, especially while we proceed through this pandemic through what has been a brutal winter in terms of exposures, deaths, and the like. But also twinning that with increased evidence that that schools and, and children in particular don't seem to be super spreaders of the virus. You know, we're <laughs> there's still some questions lingering about that, but but I I know a lot of k twelve policy advocates and, and researchers are Weighing cost benefits of the pandemic, school reopenings, less virtual uh, schooling has kind of been a a hot topic in that regard. Uh, so, kind of just twinning that with the still very real uh, threat of the virus and very real concern of parents for the effects the the virus is having on K-12 education and their children.
0: The wild, wild times that we are living in. But hopefully the survey data that we've generated in our conversation of it can help people understand it a little bit better. Gentlemen, it's been great spending this time with you. To all of our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Please make sure to check out everything that's involved with this poll on our website, www.edchoice.org. And we look forward to talking to you again on another edition of EdChoice Chats.